Welcome to Season 4 of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. This podcast is all about preventing burnout in the workplace by changing the systems that impact how mums show up at work. And sometimes those systems are part of our social infrastructure outside of work. In the first three seasons of the podcast, I interviewed researchers, DEI and HR experts, coaches and mental health experts. We talked a lot about individual change because that is what we think is within our control. But if we stop there, the collective change that we need will not happen. Only 13% of male senior managers spend time in caregiving compared to 52% of female senior managers. This season, I am therefore interviewing dads. Unless dads are more active participants in the home and more supportive leaders at work, working mums will continue to struggle, burn out, and miss out on leadership opportunities. Men have to make room for women to lead at work, and women have to make room for men to lead in the home. We can't make change alone, so I want to learn more about how we can support men to become active participants in the home and role models for caregiving leaders at work. And when mums thrive, the world benefits. This week, I'm learning from Brian Anderson, who is a community organizer and dad to two girls. He leads the organization Fathering Together and recently wrote a book of the same name. He often blogs about being present with his girls and putting work aside for those moments. Brian has had to balance his work mission with his desire to be a connected and available dad. He also talks about systems being the relationships between people and at the simplest level asking, did I make somebody's day better today? I hope you can learn as much from this conversation as I did. My name is Brian Anderson. I'm the co-founder and executive director of an organization called Fathering Together. We started it, my friend Chris and I, to really create a community of dads who care and want to see change in the world so that our kids grow up feeling loved and accepted and having active dads in their lives. And I've got two girls, they're eight and six, and they just started school this week. So we've been dealing with a lot of emotions and transitions and all the things that come with the new school year. And it's been a blast. My eldest just loves school. She wouldn't have a summer break if she could help it. Whereas my youngest, the transition's a bit harder. She misses the camp laissez-faire kind of structure and has been feigning a sore throat all week because she doesn't want to go back and it's only day three. So we're in for a long 10 more years of education with her, but that's what's great about having multiple kids. You get to really stretch your parenting skills because all the things I learned for two years with my firstborn, I had to reinvent with my second as she came into her own personality and skills. Yeah, it's so fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. I have two kids and from day one, they were polar opposites. So my my son, who's 14, he's on the autism spectrum. He has Asperger's. So he does not like going back to school because it's such a struggle. And one thing I asked him yesterday about his day and he said, I felt lonely. And that made me feel so sad, but I'm trying to work out how to support him in these things. I'm learning a lot about how to support him better. And the opposite, my daughter, who is the social butterfly, who has so many friends and is so amazing at making connections. And of course, she had a great day because she was so glad to be back with her friends. So yeah, those opposite struggles. She loves friends so much. And of course, friends are challenging too. So she has different struggles that she goes through but they are very different. The other thing I should mention though, is I have a book coming out in about a month, end of September. And it really tells the story of my journey creating Fathering Together and what I learned from my own father as I reflected on our relationship and all the new skills I'm gaining being in a community of dads who really want to live an intentional life of fatherhood and having a kind of a dad first mentality where our lives are centered around fatherhood, not the job we have in that moment. And it's such a blessing. And 
for me, it really boils down to being a servant leader in your home, not just all these books we read about CEOs that became servant leaders to reinvent their organizations. And so I said, how do we reinvent our homes with stepping in and being a parent and not just defaulting to the mom for everything? Being a writer and a researcher, sometimes research and interviews and your creative energy take you in a direction you weren't expecting. And that was definitely the case as I crafted this book. So really excited it's done though, and it's going to be out in the world. Yeah. And I'm excited that you shared with me the introduction and first chapter with me. And I really resonated with one of the reasons you wrote the book and quoting here was that your daughter said to you, dad, I know you're trying to help other dads to be good dads but you aren't being a good dad to me. And goodness, that's so hard to hear. Now I could feel like my kids might say the same thing to me. I'm here in the world trying to help companies and other moms with burnout. And sometimes I feel that job is more fulfilling to me than parenting. And that sad sigh of relief that I feel when the kids are back at school to a certain extent. Tell me a little bit about that process in terms of as well, how that might relate to the pressures of being a dad and having um, a mission in the world, because that can really be related to not being able to be the best in all arenas that you want to be and can lead to burnout. So tell me a little bit more generally about that experience that you had that led to writing the book, but also then what has your experience of burnout or managing burnout? Yeah, thanks for Pulling the bandaid off right away and getting down into it. That interaction will forever be burned in my memory. And I'm sure she will hopefully forget it. But if not, we'll have a great conversation in 20 years. That story really encapsulates a nexus of multiple levels, right? There's multiple interpretations that I've gleaned from that now a year and a half later or so. And the first is giving myself a little bit of grace that she was six at the time. She doesn't understand the full scale and weight of stress that adults carry in making your budget and having food on the table and all those things. So there is a level of that I forgave myself. But on the other hand, I was working full time. I was getting an organization off the ground and the organization I was getting off the ground is what I really wanted to be doing. My day job, I was burning out on that. And we can talk about that in a moment. So all of my creative energy was really getting poured into this new endeavor called Fathering Together as a nonprofit. And so my daughter was getting my scraps, the energy that was left over, the stale day-old bread version of me. And she's a very perceptive, very empathic kid. And so she picked up on that and she called me to the floor and said, all right, dad, put your money where your mouth is, right? And I was very blessed that within a month of that conversation, we did get significant funding to start fathering together and allow me to shift full-time into just one job. Now, obviously being the founder of an organization doesn't really mean you have one job. I've had 17,000 different hats over the last year and a half, but having that moment and that kind of metaphorical slap in the face from her made me realize, even though my passion right now is creating this new organization and connecting one-on-one with dads, helping them understand where they're burning out or where they're disconnecting with their children and their partners. It allowed me also to turn the mirror on myself and say, okay, how do I keep some creative energy on the side so that at the end of the day, when they want to play Legos or Barbies or any number of games, I don't say, oh, let's watch a movie instead so that I can quietly answer emails while they're glued to the TV. That's not parenting. That's babysitting. And I don't want to be a babysitter. Most dads I talk to don't see themselves as babysitters and stepping into a new mindset with my kids was essential. And the third piece though, really, I think we can get into more with the burnout is what are the expectations in the workplace on parents and non-parents too, right? Just because you don't have kids doesn't mean you have to work more and pick up the slack for all of us parents that have children to feed, right? I think for me, and as I look back on the pandemic, a lot of us have realized our obsession with working and working is not healthy. And how do we have a better balance individually, but systematically across whole sectors to allow for everyone to be able to go on vacation or leave work on time so they can be a coach for a sports team or take their kids to piano lessons or any number of things that might also give them life rather than just the work we do. 
Exactly. And I think too, part of the privilege that you and I have when we're thinking about our missions being related to parenting is that one, we learn a lot about it through all the people we meet along the way. And so we're constantly learning how to be a better parent. But two, it is, it does force us to reflect back on how we are turning up at home as a parent. Because again, I feel very much when I learn new tips from another mum that I've interviewed or that I need to apply them to my own life and see whether they work so that also what I can give back to organizations and parents is tested. Mum tested at home too. So yeah, I feel like in some ways to the closeness of my mission and the closeness of that to being a mum does help in certain ways. I previously was again so privileged to have another passion for my research of community change in public health. But again, that didn't every day help me with mothering necessarily. So yeah, there's some interesting ups and downs, twists and turns with all these adventures we have. Totally. And I think I also come from a very like heteronormative, like I've got a wife that is working and there's some alleviation there, right? That when I'm having a bad day, she can pick up some slack. When she's having a bad day, I pick up some slack. If we're going away for the weekend with friends, we've got someone to turn to. And there's a support system built into our marriage that single parents have to look elsewhere for. And depending on your socioeconomic status, like there's so many other intersections here. We don't have time to get into all of them, but I think it's just also good to know that my white male Catholic background, like middle class, like all these identities I hold provide a baseline of privilege that I hold in tension with the work I do every day. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, let's dig a little deeper. We've taken the bandage off. Let's dig into the wounds a little bit here then. Have you experienced burnout? Can you describe that a little bit if you have? People don't recognize burnout necessarily. So I always find it really helpful from someone can describe what they've been through. But if you don't, and you're really intentional about managing it, keeping it at bay, either because of a bad experience or because that was always a value of yours from the beginning, just tell us a little bit about that, how you in this clearly multifaceted, stressful job, you keep burnout at bay. I'm definitely one of those personality types that I burn white and hot pretty quickly and go for broke. And I know this about me, and yet I still recognize when I'm getting too hot and I need to slow down. The first time I really burned out, I was a social worker and community organizer and I was putting in long hours. I didn't really have a friend network to balance out my weekends and I just didn't have a release for the stress in any sort of healthy way. And so I'm obviously no longer a social worker in the formal sense. And my last really was this past summer where I was finishing the book. I was trying to fundraise and get some stuff in place. And I recognize the distinction this time around, because I do have healthier balances in my life. But the difference that I've noticed when I'm burning out is my creative energy is gone. When I wake up in the morning, I see my to-do list. and There's just no joy in that work, right? And there's no creativity that I pour into writing a really nice email or putting together like a social media campaign or something like that. It's just very rote and boring. But the other piece of it is a cynicism builds up in me. And I'm like, why am I the one that has to fix this system? Or when I was a social worker, why is this person in the place that's making me work harder, right? Like I wasn't angry at the system. I was angry at this individual who is the victim of the system but I was really aiming my anger and frustration at the wrong places. And in all of these different ways, like it just highlights for me the different ways I've experienced burnout. And each time I have experienced it, because there have been plenty of times in between, big and small, where I learn, okay, how do I like navigate my day job, my creative hobbies, my unicorn space, as Yvrodsky talks about? How do I incorporate all of these in healthy balances so that as a burnout starts to happen, if I'm working a nine to five job with benefits, then I can tell my boss, hey, I really need to go on a vacation. If I'm consulting, then I just slow down my client intake, right? And try to pull the levers on what needs to happen so that I don't completely wake up one morning and I'm just like, nope, I'm just going to stay in bed all day. And then I'm not communicating to my partner, to my children, to my friends. Like I just vanish for a minute. And Unplanned absences are not helpful, right? If I can tell my partner, hey, I really just need the morning, we can plan for it, right? And make that work out. 
Yeah, I think that's so important because we think about that as, oh, I need a break. But again, if it's unplanned because we got to a point of desperation, that doesn't help our teams. So I think that's so important is to go, yeah, I deserve a break and I'm going to schedule it in so everyone's aware. But I think to your description of that cynicism and feeling like a, a victim yourself of this situation, those are such early great signs that people can recognize when you start feeling resentful, especially resentful against the wrong people. That's such a good early sign of burnout as well as the cynicism. And then the frustration with things that maybe you wouldn't previously get frustrated at. And I think as you described, if you don't have, like you said, the network of friends, we have these unhealthy work habits. And so to unlearn them, we actually have to replace them with other things. So if we're not replacing them with time with family or friends, then yeah, we're going to look at our email again. So it is this active unlearning that we really have to do. And that certainly for me was that reminder to actually get out of the house, get away from my family, get away from my emails and do something, a hobby that was mine. That was also such an essential first step for me. So I appreciate those. I think I'd really love to, if it's okay with you, you mentioned the word system there. And that's one of the things that I also love about you, your background in social work, your background in community services. This is where you and I, when we first met, we both talked about like the social ecological model. This is all part of our training. And to be honest, our mindset and I particularly loved how in your introduction to your book, you're not happy with the status quo. <laughs> that is so mean. So Jacqueline actually means usurper. It's a French name and it means usurper. And I'm like, that's me. I'm not happy with this status quo. I'm so friggin' sick of it. So yeah, please tell me a little bit more what your thoughts are about how we do actually change the systems? I know it's a hard question, but I'd love to hear it because you have this understanding of the larger forces at work in society. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad we're tackling the easy questions on this too. Thank you, Jacqueline. Honestly, the way we tackle systems though is human relationships and recognizing that no system is ever going to be perfect unless, well, Full stop, right? No system is perfect. But a way to mitigate that is to keep a human-centered design to whatever system we're building. And so many systems that as parents we encounter on a daily basis, whether that's public education, healthcare systems, you name it, there's just not a human-centered piece to it, especially as AI is taking over and automatic phone call systems and hit buttons here and there. A lot of the questions that people come up with that they need an answer to fall in these gray areas, right? Most of us can just Google a basic answer and find the solution. It's when Google fails us that we really need a human being. And when we have systems that don't have humans in them, then things start to break down, at least from my perspective. And so by starting with the one-on-one -on -one interactions that we have and how do I help my neighbor or how do I help my coworker get through, through the day that much easier, then we begin to start seeing these patterns in other spaces. And as I used to tell students when I worked in university settings, if you help somebody else, if you go to their program first, if you say yes to them, there's a kind of implied favor that you're asking them to return and show up at your event or help you out with a project down the road. Not everyone's necessarily going to take that, but if you're putting yourself out there to say, hey, I can help you figure out this system or figure out this problem, then you're working together and that relationship connects you. Even if you have a lot of differences, you found a common ground to struggle against this other thing. And the more those interactions, those human relations start to look through these lenses of problems we all have. And when we look at these problems from a shared lens that we can all solve, again, human-centered, but basing it on a foundation of trust in one another to fix a system and to build a new system rather than just the other way around of here's a solution, let's see if it fits. And perfect example is our keyboards. No one likes keyboards, they hurt our wrists, but we use them because someone designed this and said, this is the way it goes based on the technology at the time. Yet now we have so many other different keyboards that you can find out there that are ergonomically correct and all these different things, but that wasn't a human designed element in the beginning. And so how do we do that with our systems? And I think one of those things is when we look at our workday for parents, it's not helpful. And especially when we have kids in school, because I need to get downtown for work sometimes. And in Chicago, that can be up to an hour. 
if I need to be downtown at nine o'clock and my kid's school day starts at nine o'clock, what am I going to do for that hour and a half that they need to be supervised? Say on the opposite side, they get done at 3.30. My clock runs out at five. Again, another hour and a half. And so for them, I have to find childcare or I have to do an aftercare program, which is additional money out of my pocket. Whereas if we reinvent a system where work and we see that in the pandemic, working from home has a lot of flexibility to take place. A lot more human centered solutions coming through allows for some of that stress to come off of the parents. And like I said, in the beginning, one-on-one, I could do something really simple to help you through your day, carry your groceries to your car, at the grocery store. I don't know, something simple. But on a systematic level, as a community leader, a politician, whatever, I've created a new answer to a system that benefits a lot of people, that alleviates a lot of stress. And when I talk with corporations and dads who are in corporate leadership positions, They all talk about wanting to be more involved with their families. And I say, how do you role model that? Like, how can you reorganize the internal systems to be more family friendly and employee friendly so that there is that ability to step away, like we talked about with burnout, to having more flexibility in the humanity that we all share. That's fantastic. I think those are all great examples because I think systems change is something, I think lots of people think of systems as a thing that has to change. The system has to change. Systems are about the decision makers. And again, it's how do you change those decision makers? So yeah, I very much appreciate what you're saying. And to hear those words again, human-centered design, (laughs) haven't heard them for a while for myself. So that's great. And Because again, the research I would do is I was in a technology institute and everyone was saying, well, this this data and this technology is going to help us. And then they come back to me and say, why isn't it working? I said, because you haven't got any human in it, not just the human-centered design in it, but we need people to help us. Like you say, we can Google the easy answer, but most of our lives are spent in this gray where we actually need somebody as an accountability partner, as a support. It's the same when I help companies with their AI systems within healthcare. They've got all the AI solutions, but they've forgotten it has to integrate into a human workflow with humans appreciating this innovation, and it doesn't always happen. Not to mention the fact that cool systems never understand my British accent. Yes. And skin tone, right? A friend of mine said, hey, did you know motion sensors for a lot of things, especially like faucets, are designed off of very pale skin. And so people with darker skin tones don't always activate those motion sensors the same way. And I was like, are you serious? Even those are racist? And they're like, yeah. And it really makes you realize the nuance that comes in the human centeredness of it all. And who's the human really at the center? that we are building this around and for. And it's the same with heart rate monitors originally that were on the wrist. We're having the same problem with skin tone. It's so fascinating to think how far back you have to go in a system's design to realize where it went wrong. Because again, we don't think about those systems that exist now. We don't think about why they were designed and what they were designed for, yet we're using them for all these things. Such a challenge. Could we also talk a little bit then about what leaders and organizations can do to help dads in particular, accepting that that the premise, because I've already had some of these conversations and folks will be able to hear on the podcast, that we definitely need more space for dads to be able to, like you said, they want to spend more time with their families. So how do we give them that support to do that? How do leaders and organizations learn to do that or decide to do that? One is recognizing though, that a lot of the leaders are dads themselves and they are perpetuating their own disconnect in a way by working the longer hours, assuming their partner and everyone's partner can stay home or assuming that everyone has the freedom and the privilege to just take time off or any number of things. I remember I worked for an organization a number of years ago where the CEO, the executive director rather, made this cavalier comment about his salary. And I looked at a couple of my friends and I'm like, in the back of my head, I'm like, you make four times what I make. And that's really inappropriate and setting a powerful tone that shouldn't exist, right? And ultimately, F you, right? Congratulations, you have a second home or you have all these other privileges because of the salary you get versus what I get and you employ me, right? So there's this weird dynamic that happened. I tend to be a bit more egalitarian in my thinking if that isn't obvious already. So just to warn you and your listeners, but I think the way to go about this is having more women and 
just not men in leadership, right? Non-binary folks, people of color, just diversifying the leadership decision-making, what we are alluding to with the systems. If you have more voices and more perspectives to solve a problem, it's going to be nasty and gnarly, and it's going to take a lot of time, but you're going to get a healthier, more relationally focused solution. And relying on just a few key people that tend to be white men at the top to make it for everyone, you're not going to get that depth and richness to a solution. And the first thing is make sure the people that are making the workplace policies and building culture are those that have a stake in it from different perspectives. And that could mean inviting an entry-level employee to give their perspective, a parent, a non-parent, any number of voices to say, okay, how do we make this work? But the other piece ultimately is making sure that the leadership walks the walk with everyone else. And I've met some really innovative tech companies that are coming up and from the very beginning of their formation, setting up policies that even if no one has children yet, they're putting in a policy so they can be attractive to people who do have children. And it's not just a bunch of 20 somethings that can just work long hours and be cool because that's not going to be healthy for those 20 something year olds. So yeah, having a diverse group of people helping to set the policies within the corporation or the company, and then having the senior leadership following through with those policies in their own lives and being vocal about it. If I'm the CEO and I've got a kid in little league and I'm a coach or assistant coach clocking out at four o'clock to make sure I get there, sending a company-wide email saying, Hey, I'm not going to be there. If you contact me, I won't respond because I need to dedicate time to my kid. That sets a bar that a lower level employee can be like, great, if that's what everybody else is doing, I'm not going to feel awkward going to my supervisor and saying, hey, I'm also a coach. I need to leave at four o'clock tomorrow too. And then it creates not just an atmosphere for people to be more honest and open about it, but it also creates another level of camaraderie within the office and making it okay to have a personality and a richness to your life that you can then share within the office that may not have happened before. Exactly. That role modeling is, is so important because, again, you can't just give permission for others to do it because if you're not doing it yourself, nobody else feels safe either. And also they need to see those like behaviors operationalized. That's what I feel like so much, this kind of articulation and touting of these values, and they've not been operationalized. Now, that actually means, like you said, sending the email out loud to say, I'm going. And that's the other side of this quiet quitting that we're hearing about, which is I totally understand when there is not psychological safety, you definitely have to be quiet about when you leave and the limits you put on. But if we can have our leaders actually doing out loud (laughs) limits, then yeah, that's really going to help everybody for sure. But as we think about that too, I'm starting to see how companies are starting to say, yeah, we're reducing our paid leave because of the current economic climate. So how do we also, I'm not asking you any easy question today, Brian. Oh my goodness. Why are these the things that are last to come, first to go out the window? And how do we really communicate this central benefit of them? Again, systems are only the decisions people make. And and as somebody called out, it's not companies that are deciding this. Who is actually deciding? Who's the person deciding to reduce maternity leave, paternity leave too? How can we change where these policies sit in the hierarchy of importance? Man, I don't think we have enough time, but I'll just answer quickly and succinctly that I had a conversation yesterday with someone who said growth for growth's sake is cancer and unchecked growth is cancer. Like in our bodies, that's cancer. That's the definition of what cancer is. And and she was really though speaking to this like ever climbing stock numbers and ever climbing growth. And the faster you grow, the more successful your company must be. The fathering together early stages started as just a Facebook group. And then for the first year, it was relatively small. That's not true. We had 10,000 by the end of our first year members just joining. But the first couple of months, it was several hundred dads just joining and sharing stories. And then when we hit 10,000, we were like, oh, we're onto something. This is getting complicated. And then by the end of the second year, we had over a hundred thousand dads and it was amazing. I was like, oh my gosh, people like me. Like I was like that popular kid at high school, but the amount of stress and weight to create, to find volunteers, to help run the space, to create quote unquote guidelines and cultures for this online space took a lot of effort. And I learned a lot about myself. I gained a lot of leadership skills. I appreciate all of that, but like any system, once you start 
dehumanizing to just say we just won't allow any posts like x then you're going to get a post that's in the gray area that you're like do let this go and we had a member whose child was going through chemotherapy and he asked i don't have a job i need some help but we had a strict no GoFundMes, no asking for money because where does that line go but he was so well loved in the group he was one of the original members that we said okay we'll let this one exception and sure enough within the day i had 20 requests from other dads saying, Hey, I've got a sick kid too. I'm like, see, this is why this is the challenge we face. And how do we vet all these things? But I think the the bigger question that you're asking about is when a company says we're doing away with X or Y, I think it comes down to in the for-profit space, our shareholders are our profit margins where we need them to be. And in the nonprofit space, it's around impact. Are we hitting the impact numbers so we can get donations from funders and all these things? And a lot of that just comes down to data. And for centuries, for millennia, we didn't exist on data like we do now. And somehow we survived. Progress was much slower, but it was very much more organic and experiential and based in the biology of the worlds that our ancestors lived in. And I think for me, we need to go back to some of that and ask, is this explosive growth in tech necessary? All of this made up money in the Bitcoin world and cryptocurrency, it doesn't really have value unless we give it value. And so how do we put value into our employees? How do we recognize that my employee needs the time off so that the time we have for them in the office is that much more efficient and impactful? And they need those times off so there's not burnout. And am I in this for the company to grow? Even the CEO is an employee of most corporations, right? Like they could be kicked out. And if we recognize that tenuous situation we're all in, that we could be out on the street without a job, we start to maybe think a little bit differently that if the margin of profit is 0.75 instead of 0.5, what's the long-term effects on the health of the employees versus just the shareholders and who do we really want to have benefit there? But again, this I love the question. It's something I do think about quite often, but I know my board president, who's an economist, would have a very different response because we have very lively discussions every time we talk about it around value and productivity and all the other things that go into those mathematical models that economists use. But for me, it really comes down to what I said earlier, like, how are you helping somebody's day a little easier? And in this sense, as the boss, how do you help your employees have a little bit better of a day? Because if they're more productive, you're going to be better productive and you're going to be able to market the company make business associations with other companies that much smoother because your employees are happy and firing on all cylinders. And in a very roundabout way, it comes back to this idea of servant leadership, which is what I grounded my book in and defining that my success as the leader or as a father, my success is really at the growth and development of my children and, or in the office, the growth and development of my staff, not just the products we put out. And if we have that mindset I think we've seen in case studies from businesses, and hopefully as we start to implement this with dads in our projects at Fathering Together, we'll see healthier and more balanced families coming out of this. So yeah, really focusing on that growth of development of humans. I love that interaction that you made between those two, because that is what I'm most concerned about my kids, their growth and development in the same way. So yeah, so putting that back into that workplace versus the products that they are. No, I'm not interested in the products my children are or the products they can sell. That's so important. And I think too, just that back to, like you said, that can you carry the groceries for someone? Because systems change and all these questions, they are, they're overwhelming and they're so hard to answer. But you can really, on a day-to-day basis, think, did I make somebody's day easier today? That is something that we can all reflect upon and have an answer to. So I appreciate that. I appreciate that it can come down to that. And fully knowing though, as parents, we know those first few years of life, our kids don't care about how easy our day is, right? There's a lot of developmental growth that comes with understanding and having empathy for those around us but you know there's plenty of people and there's some really cool instagram channels and other folks that are really putting out content for even the youngest of kids to start developing that kind of other-centered mentality that empathy that we all need to have some level to carry within our humanity And, and i'm being really mindful of that between my daughter and my son 
I definitely want my daughter to understand she needs to look after herself. She definitely is other oriented. And so I'm reminding her to look after herself as much as she does all the other people she looks after. And then on the other side with my son, who definitely, um, partly because of his diagnosis, is self-focused. And it's okay. The key to unlocking some of this is to have the other focus too. So it's so interesting to think about the active counter weights that you almost have to provide because we're so influenced by the social expectations by gender too yeah yeah and it's like when you're flying in a plane you're supposed to put the mask on first before you put them on somebody else and if the air pressure goes there's a certain level of you can't help other people if you're burned out and you run through all of your energy so yeah it's a daily balancing act because one day you're going to tip one way the next you need to tip back and well, I haven't eased up on the questions and I'm not going to at all. <laughs> you're, you're, do, you're doing too well in the answers. What do you wish mums did more of to help dads play a more active role or to help themselves? Yeah, you warned me you're going to ask this question. And I thought of some ways to respond. And I know lots of dads are worried that their wives are going to be so mad. Yes, you're going to make me lose clients out of my response. Honestly, moms have done enough. I'll put it that way. Like we see in conversations around race and larger gender dynamics that we've seen these past few years, moms have said enough of what they need from their husbands and partners. And my wife will say the same thing. She's told me multiple times, I don't always practice what I preach. I am human. I make mistakes, but I know what I need to do. And I'm doing my best to implement plans in our family that alleviate stress for my wife. And some of the things are easy for me to do. Some of it's harder because it goes against my nature or it's just more complicated. But I think honestly, like the onus is on us as dads to listen, but also to hold each other accountable. And which is why at Fathering Together, we're very community oriented in our programs. We don't want dads just going to a resource, downloading it, reading it. We want dads coming to weekly work groups and conversation sessions. But this fall, we're launching a couple of chapters that are based out of schools. And so working within the PTA to get dads more invested in the schools. So the burden is really taken away from the moms, not in a way that is like condescending and say, oh, we're going to come in because we know how to do this better. <laughs> Chest pounding men. Instead saying, hey, we want to liberate some of your time and we want to liberate ourselves from being beholden to the office day in and day out. And I think that's the piece that if anything, moms could maybe say differently if I have to say that. But honestly, it's uh, how do we recognize that by giving dads opportunities to be dads, we're liberating everyone within the family. We're allowing dads to build better, more emotional connections with their children. We're allowing moms to find free time to pursue a career, to pursue a hobby, we're allowing our children to recognize, oh, both my parents are people I can rely on, not just my mom. And I learned that myself. My dad was very caring and present. I never went to him for homework assignments because he was not good for the homework front, but he was good for pretty much everything else. I went to my mom for all the math and things. For dads to say to one another, dad to dad, you got to step up. It takes the burden off everyone else. Just like in affinity spaces for racial conversations, white people need to hold white people accountable. And dads need to hold each other accountable. And not in a way that's, again, not shaming. Many of us, that, or I should say, many dads I talk to tell me, I want to be the dad that I didn't have for myself. All of the decisions I make are the opposite of what my dad did when I was a child. My dad did that with my grandpa. And so I was the beneficiary of that with my dad. But so many more dads are starting to say that to me. And I hear it across the board. I really do see a sea change of dads saying, I want to be more involved. I want to be more engaged. And we have to learn a lot from moms. A lot of the solutions are there already. We just need to translate them better for ourselves, but also recognizing that a lot of the job skills we have around communication, team leadership, program management. If you have Asana or Trello or any of these program management softwares and you're a wizard at it in the office, that doesn't mean you can't use it at home to, you know, get a weekly schedule down for food, for packing up to get to school on time. Like it's just a manner of translation in application. And so helping dads recognize that the skills to be a great dad are not all that different from being a great teammate in an office space. 
It's just tweaking it a little differently because a five-year-old won't respond the same way as a 40-year-old colleague. That's great. That's such great advice. And I suppose one of the reasons I asked that question was because my husband and I went through the Ivrodsky's Fair Play system and we sat down and for me, it was such a hard reality check. One, because I realized even though he had a lot of tasks on his plate, he didn't have hardly any parenting tasks on his plate. And I asked him, will you step up and do more of these tasks? And he had to say to me, I don't want to because you criticize me so much over those tasks. And that was so hard for me to hear. And that was such a hard point in our marriage, but I heard it. I heard what he said. And so actually for us, the solution was not sharing tasks. The solution was me getting out the house and leaving him to do it on his own in the way he wanted to. Because even if I didn't open my mouth, my eyes were saying something, right? So that's why I asked that question, because I own it. I own that that I'm judgmental in this space too. But I think the other part of what you described there about the generations really made me think about my own journey. For example, when I first became a parent, that's when I first started not liking myself. And I didn't understand why. And that whole trajectory partly led to my burnout. But what I eventually understood was, It's because I was being an authoritarian parent and I didn't like being that person. So it took me a lot to recognize that and then to learn totally different parenting skills. To be honest, I've got to think about this, like that transformation that I went through and I'm still going through, for goodness sake, is the same one that I'm asking dads to make. And it was hard. It is hard. I was trying to think of these ways that, okay, what in my experience can help me relate to what dads are having to do as well? So Those were good examples. Thank you. And you pointed out something that I failed to mention in my response. And that is the kind of quote unquote gatekeeping that some moms have over their domain of the home. And that's a very realistic, understandable situation because if the workplace is traditionally the man's domain, then obviously the mom's domain is the home. I think there's a balance that has to happen in both spaces, right? Like men need to give up their gatekeeping of the corporate world and the nonprofit space, the business world. And as we talked about earlier, having more voices in leadership. And I've worked for lots of different types of people in my career. And it's refreshing. You learn something every time because of how the perspective shifts. And if if we want to have more opportunities to be a parent, we have to let women and all voices, trans, non-binary, everything into the corporate world as well. And I think that's going to be a hard sell for some men, some dads. And and I fully appreciate that. Not going to let them off the hook because as you noted, I'm not one to allow the status quo to ever remain too static. I want it very dynamic and ever evolving and changing so we can find a solution. Uh, There's one other piece we're going to mention. Oh, part of why we're doing the school-based, and this was something that my team and I talked about a lot, is moms are still very active in the schools, and yet they're working full-time as well, right? Some of my neighbors are lawyers, doctors, teachers themselves, and yet they're expected to be on the PTA, do all these different things. Where are the dads? We're still working but we aren't picking up that other piece. And so again, this liberation that comes with equity is really a benefit to all of us. We just have to recognize that. So, And I think that's so important, actually, because I was discussing recently a situation in my son's school where all the girls had been volunteering way more hours than the boys to the point that they got burnt out and did not enjoy the event that they were hosting. And I sat there and thought, why is that? And it is, again, because their mums are in there also volunteering, maybe without limits. So I'm so pleased that you're going into that space because, again, it is a huge burden and source of guilt for me me? Am I volunteering enough in my kid's school? Because I want to have those relationships with the teachers and the other parents. Those are so important to me. And yeah, I think that's exactly also where we need our dads to step in. Because then again, they'll be the one knowing the relationship with the parents. They can be making the play dates. They can be having the teacher parent conferences, but also, as you say, doing some of that PTA work where, again, I so value that my husband has a different perspective to me and that he provides that to my kids. So I want that perspective in the school too. He's not a rule follower. I want some non-rule following people in my kid's school saying, why don't we do it this way instead? Yeah, that would be so awesome. And our kids then get two perspectives on how to solve things later in life for themselves, right? They, They get a balance. How would dad do this? How would mom do this? Maybe I'll do it my own way. That's the power of having multiple voices in a parenting situation. And again, why community is so important. And Having neighbors that help parent your children, if they bond with someone down the street because they're a cool gardener, I don't know, then your kid may become an amazing gardener and 
you are have a brown thumb. I don't know, like random scenario. But again, the point is our kids are who they are. We can't force them to become any type of profession. We can influence a whole heck of a lot, but we want to make sure that they're making the right choice for them. And if that means connecting them with another adult as a mentor, all the more power to it. And that's what I've actually done. My son has a writing mentor, an old colleague of mine. And yeah, because again, he doesn't want to share his writing with mom. I get it. I get it. And just back to the schools too, it made me also think again to the situation where I was reading the book by Jessica Nordahl. And basically she was talking about the examples in Norwegian and, and Scandinavian schools. One Teachers are paid so much more, so they're highly valued. So it's a profession for both male and female teachers, which we don't have currently. It's not valued and it's not paid appropriately. So yeah, it is in a much more female-dominated sector. But also in some schools there, they're not even using any sort of pronoun or male or female gender assignation as in the very young kids. Again, so that that we don't have these social influences around gender. So I'm just so fascinated by those types of policies. And maybe they're still experiments, but I think that's the level that we need change. But while we're waiting for that, getting dads into the PTA is a more accessible, open venue for us now. So appreciate that you're in there. So just before I do ask your dad joke, because again, I think humor is so important in this process. And as we say in our household, dad's fun, but mom's funny. Just give me a little vision of the future home and work life that you want for your kids. And again, you've told us so much about how we get there. But I always think about that reverse engineering process of saying, this is what I want. On a baseline, understanding that communication is the key for them and their partner, for them and me, I hope to be around to see them have a family, right? So how can I be of support to them? And communication is key to that. But honestly, I want them to have the value of the confidence to do what they want to do with their life, whether that's be a teacher, be a full-time parent, being whatever, knowing that nothing's going to be handed to them and nothing's going to be easy, but their mom and I have their back in every opportunity that they want to excel at. And my wife is actually the soccer coach this fall for one of my daughter's teams. She's like, I really want to do this. It's way more work than I realized, but I really just want to do this. And for both her and my daughter, there's just this new bond I see forming around this love of soccer. And my other daughter, she's fine with soccer, but her heart is more in the theater like mine. And so we've been talking about looking up piano lessons in a theater class. And so again, letting them know that all these things are possible. You just got to really work hard and really want to want it in, in both their future. And that applies to vacations and non-workspace too, and making sure that they weave that into how they craft a life for themselves with whatever partner they end up with. Great. Fully accepted and rounded. Okay. So Brian, did I hear I'm going to ask about your favorite dad joke? And I've learned a little bit from asking this. Do you want to deliver the joke with me trying to come up with the answer? Or is this is don't interrupt me. I'm telling you the joke and the, and the punchline because I've been like trying to answer the question and then me asking and someone's punchline are overlapping. I'll give you a chance to answer it. It's better that way. Oh, humor shouldn't be organized, right? Oh my God. And this comes by way of my daughter. She found this the other day and was so proud of herself. She was like, dad, I found a dad joke. And I was like, okay, lay it on me. And she says to me, why did the golfer wear two pants? Or why did the golfer bring two pants for his round of golf? He might get a hole in one. So as soon as she told me, I laughed really hard and I handed her my phone. I'm like, you have to call grandpa. Grandpa would love this. And she knows how to use my phone. So she dials my dad and she's grandpa, I have a joke for you. And I could hear him laughing. I could, she was so proud to get one over on grandpa. And yeah, so it was a really good day a couple of days ago when she discovered this joke. Yeah. And my dad's a golfer too. So I'm going to give this one to my kids to use on him. And it's so funny because each time I've had an interview, the kids are back at school now, but last week I heard you laughing. What was his joke? And so, yeah, I've come out of these interviews and shared the jokes with them and it's great. They're so interested in asking, okay, what did you learn mom from this experience? Anything else you want to leave our audience with? You've had so many words of wisdom. You caught me on a good day. No, I, I just appreciate your time for allowing me to spin some wisdom and plug my book a bit. We're going to be doing a lot of different events and kind of gamification of fatherhood a bit with different dad groups as we 
really implement this uh, PTA strategy we've got with Fathering Together. So stay tuned for more exciting news. Thanks so much for listening today. Don't forget to check out my website, www.drjacquelinecurr.com for your free guides to prevent burnout. Would you like to join a cohort of women like yourself who want to disrupt the status quo but are facing constant barriers and like you are beginning to wonder whether your approach will even gain traction? Have you experienced the supportive environment of executive group coaching, knowing you're not alone and learning from others' mistakes and strategies, but you want to have more concrete goals and measures of progress? In conjunction with my leadership training, I'm facilitating small groups of women executives in peer learning collaboratives. This is a scientific process that it's used in medicine when important new recommendations need to be put into practice and there's likely to be pushback. Peer learning collaboratives leverage the supportive environment of group coaching, but with more targeted goals, greater accountability, and a quality improvement process that measures impact through learning cycles. In my training, you'll learn five new evidence-based strategies to support your leadership confidence and credibility, including how to use macro and micro root cause problem solving, how to create culture change through daily behavior change, and how to manage change and burnout. The peer learning collaboratives will provide a safe environment for you to put your new skills and strategies into action while learning from other women leading similar change efforts in their organizations. As you face barriers, we will problem solve together, empowering you to use adaptive experimental processes to help you build more resilient and informed solutions. A peer learning collaborative has three phases. In the co-design phase, members are brought together from diverse areas to establish buy-in and shared ownership. Building trust is important in this phase through shared values and expectations, shared vision and goals, open communication channels, and conflict resolution processes. In the collaborative learning phase, the group process is further solidified through peer empowerment, accountability partners, and celebrating small wins. The experimental process then starts with needs assessments, behavior targets, logic modeling, and plan, do, study, act cycles. In the adaptation and scale phase, lessons from the learning phase are translated into best practice guidelines and operational toolkits. Case studies are shared and champions are empowered to promote the findings and benefits to other units. How often do you find that you're trying to prevent the fires that men love to put out? You're spoiling their quick fixes and save the day hero-based approaches. Instead, you can see the forest and the trees. You want to disrupt the status quo with more collaborative, adaptable, long-term approaches that change how and why we work, bringing in flexibility and greater purpose. Yet your ideas are dismissed and the systems remain stuck, perpetuating bias and burnout. My training will give you the confidence and credibility to lead through change, manage change, and leverage change for transformational change. It will show you that your intuitive gendered intelligence is supported by tried and tested scientific frameworks, and it will provide you with more processes and tools to leverage that knowledge for greater impact and social good, based in public health science, behavior change science, and implementation science. Never before have we been through a global pandemic, racial reckoning, mental health epidemic, or great resignation. With a recession looming, post-pandemic stress levels are likely to remain high and resources low. Reports from Deloitte, Microsoft, Adeco, and Modern Health show that employees are dissatisfied with the current fix-the-person solutions and want to see transformational change in the organization itself. The need to lead with impact and provide return on investment is greater than ever, in more uncertain, challenging, and complex times than ever. 
During these times of monumental change, there have been few guiding frameworks for leaders. There are not yet evidence-based solutions to these new emerging and urgent problems. So it's even more essential to use evidence-based processes to manage change. My behavior science tools will enable you to embrace complexity, lead through change, and manage the overwhelm. I want to help women leaders with a new playbook for compassionate and competent leadership in times of change and complexity, with evidence-based frameworks and strategies for moving beyond the status quo and leading the workforce of the future. When you join a peer learning collaborative, you'll gain confidence, camaraderie, and compassion for the challenges you face. We will use scientific tools and processes to guide our progress, use behavior change strategies to keep us on track, and key indicators of change to evaluate our impact. Over a 12-week period, you'll set goals for the changes you want to see in your organization. You'll operationalize them as behaviors. You'll prepare your organization for change by creating a safe learning and growth culture. You'll roll out and measure what is working and why and develop ways to overcome barriers to change. You'll share your progress and challenges with the other executive women in your cohort so they can benefit from your experience, so they can provide support and ideas for solutions, and so that together you can exponentially grow your learning, leveraging each other's adaptations and innovations to similar problems. The training and cohorts will be available in 2023. In the meantime, I've created a free masterclass to introduce you to the five key strategies because change can be scary and you still might be uncertain about what it takes. My five evidence-based leadership strategies are leading through complexity with compassion, understanding root causes and solving macro and micro problems using the social ecological model and lessons from public health, leading with impact, identifying and operationalizing key change levers using behavior change science and strategies to create sustainable habits that change systems. Leading with insight, creating the conditions for a culture of change using psychological safety, emotional intelligence, rewarding daily behaviors, and empowering role models. Leading with curiosity, finding and testing new solutions for employee wellness, retention, and belonging using peer learning collaboratives as a supportive and science-based process for managing change and developing resilience. Leading with clarity, understanding and managing multifaceted burnout so you and those you lead can thrive through change using multi-level burnout solutions. If you're ready to start on a new leadership journey, I look forward to guiding you through this in my online course, and supporting you in a peer learning collaborative. Please direct message me to get access to the free masterclass or sign up for the 2023 start. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care.
Rise, feel the power.